It is a pleasure uh, to to be here with you this morning to worship, um, to to come together in the house of the Lord and 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 lift up the name of our God. Um, we are uh, continuing through Acts. I know a lot of uh, the college students are wondering if they are going to be able to see the end of Acts or if they're going to graduate before that time comes. Um, but uh, I, I hope and pray that uh, the study is edifying to you, that uh, you are able to learn and, and take away um, important things from each week. So we are in, in Acts chapter 17 this week. We're going to be at, uh, looking at verses 1 through 15. Now, I, I feel like I should let you know that um, I've probably, in preparing for this, prepared three different messages. Um, so, if my title doesn't exactly match up with, with what I'm saying, hope you can forgive me. I, I sent in all of that stuff before I was finished. <clears throat> so, we're looking at Acts chapter 17. I, I originally entitled it, The Heart-Changing world-flipping gospel. And it was interesting to me because I was, I was preaching last week um, on a text from 1 John, and, and this, this just kind of seemed to go right along with it. Um, and I was talking about the, um, I'm sure you've all heard the Christian cliche, we live in the world, but we are not of the world. I, I'm sure you've heard that. And, you know, the idea behind it, it's great. You know, we have, we have dual citizenship. We, we live on this earth, and yet our home, eternal home, is in heaven. But I, in, in that message, I, I kind of maybe flipped it around, challenged it a little bit, because if we are living under the Great Commission, and we have just finished a series on the Great Commission, I feel like in but not of takes away from the Great Commission. So I, I kind of changed it to not of, but sent into. Because our call as Christians is to go into all of the nations, to, to make disciples, to preach the gospel. We are to remain faithful to that call. And that is exactly what we see Paul and Silas doing this week. And they, they, you know, they face a lot of interesting situations, a lot of um, hardship. Um, you know, last week they saw they were politely asked, maybe not so politely, but they were asked to leave the city. Um, you know, whether, whether they're in jail, whether there's mobs forming, whether there's riots happening, which we will get to, um, a lot of the times this message causes Christians to be kicked out of the city, and that is definitely the case with Paul and Silas this morning. So Acts chapter 17, I'm going to go ahead and read it. And we will pick up our text. Verses 1 through 15. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many 
of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Paul, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Join me in prayer. Father God, we come before you humbly this morning as we open your word, as we spend a few hours here um, worshiping, lifting your name, uh, reading from your word. God, I I pray that our time would be um, edifying, our time would be used in a way that we can glorify you. God, that as we walk out the doors, you would help us to remain faithful. You would help us to be bold. And God, that you would be our source of strength for that. God, help us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, lives that that match up with what we say we believe. God, I I thank you for this opportunity and ask that um, you would use me in a mighty way, that you would uh, remove me out of the way uh, so that your word can speak. I thank you, I praise you, and it's in the name of Jesus I pray and ask all of these things. Amen. So we pick up our text from last week, 94 miles down the road from where Paul and Silas were asked to leave. They were in Philippi, and now they're traveling to Thessalonica. So we're just going to have a a little bit of an overview of exactly what happened in our text. So verses 1 through 4, it breaks down pretty nicely, three separate sections. Verses 1 through 4, Paul goes into Thessalonica... And I find it interesting that he passes through two cities. Now, this is because Paul has a very strategic plan of evangelism. He's not just going into any city and, you know, saying, oh, am I able to preach the gospel here? He is moving with intention. And he knows, okay, uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia most likely don't have synagogues. They're, they're not as big of a, big of a city as Thessalonica. So I'm going to go to Thessalonica because that is 
like a trade center. The, the population was roughly 200,000 people, um, and, you know, there's a Jewish synagogue, so he's able to have kind of like the hot spot for evangelism. And it's interesting because he is, he's really following um, the plan that he sets out in Romans 1.16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and salvation for the Jew first and also the Greek. So he goes to the synagogue first and he proclaims to them the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting because he starts with the people who already know about God. These Jews study the Old Testament scriptures and they know that they're waiting for a Messiah. And Paul is coming to them and saying, you know, this guy that you're waiting for, he has come. And he has died on the cross and he has risen. And Paul is living his life like he believes Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. Now, isn't that a challenge for us today? It's, it's easy for us to intellectually say, okay... I know that Jesus rose from the grave. I know that His sacrifice on the cross paid the penalty for my sins. But to let that affect our hearts is a completely different thing. Um, and when that happens, we, we see bold, faithful men and women of God who courageously preach the gospel no matter what the cost is. His plan involves four separate things. He reasons, he explains, he proves, and he proclaims. Now, we're going to come back to that in a little bit here, but, but just in the flow of the narrative, let's, let's talk about it. Paul is not going into the synagogue and delivering a formal, serv- uh, formal sermon. He's not, you know, opening up um, Isaiah 53 and, you know, explaining everything in the text. He's... He's coming to them and he's saying, I know this Messiah that you're waiting for. And he's asking them questions. He's letting them ask him questions. And he's, he's really following, um, we, well, we find later in his epistle to the Thessalonians that he not only shares the gospel of God with them, but he shares his life. And I, I find that interesting that um, that is his plan of evangelism. Like, He's not coming along and just, you know, throwing the gospel at them. He is literally living alongside of them. He's there for three Sabbath days, reasoning with them. He asks, they ask, there's, there's a lot of questions going on, and, and ultimately everything he's saying is pointing to Christ as the Messiah. He uses the Bible because um, he knows the Bible. He knows they know the Bible, the Old Testament Scriptures, so he's using what they believe to prove that Christ has come and is this Messiah. He could use texts like Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, a few possibilities. He could have gone all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the fall when we see the first pronouncement uh, of the gospel um, where um, Satan is promised that you know, his head is going to be crushed by the seed of Abraham. Uh, seed of Adam, seed of the woman. Um, all of these texts, all of these prophecies, he could have talked about with them and said, this Messiah that you're waiting for has come. And the cool thing is, in the first four verses, a bunch of people come to Christ. A bunch of people put their trust in Christ. And that is always something that we can praise God for. 
Now, it's, it's mostly Greeks, and it's also lots of women. And I, I love the expression that Paul uses twice, uh, sorry, Luke uses twice when he says, and not a few women. I almost feel like that's a, like a humorous way of saying there was a lot of people. Like there may have been all of this trouble going on, but there was a lot of people that were persuaded by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we move to verses 5 through 9 and see the Jews start to get jealous of, of Paul coming and preaching the gospel to them. So why, why do you think they would be getting jealous? Well, he comes into their synagogue, starts preaching a different message, a fulfillment of the message that they believe, and they start losing power and influence. So he's there proclaiming the gospel and everyone has their attention on him. He has the floor. People are asking him questions. And the authorities within the synagogue, I'm sure, are getting upset. They're saying, who does this guy think he is? He's coming and proclaiming this Messiah, who we don't believe is the Messiah, and saying, you need to put your trust in him because he has come to pay the penalty for sin. So they, they're, getting, they're getting irritated with him. And we see that they're going to do whatever it takes to get rid of them. They're going to um, hire some men. Now, the King James translates it, um, lewd men of the baser sort. I, I wouldn't want to be called that. So you think a, a lewd man of the baser sort, most likely he's a little shady. Most likely, you know, he's going to do just about anything to make some money. And so the Jews go to these people and say, all right, we need you to start this mob. We need you to... Um, start some trouble and blame it all on these, this Paul and Silas guy. Because, you know, we don't, we don't like the message that they're proclaiming. And they do that. And look at, there are, there are basically three charges that are brought against Paul and Silas. The first one, uh, they, they are charged with turning the world upside down. Now, how cool is that? Like, they're preaching the gospel. And people see that it is affecting people around them. And they're like, this message that they're proclaiming is changing a lot of people. Now, we don't want anything to do with that, but it's changing a lot of people. To me, that reveals the faithfulness that Paul and Silas have to the gospel. It, re- it reveals the boldness that they have in preaching the gospel. Because... You know, they're, they're preaching this and they're relying on the Holy Spirit to change hearts. And it is changing things. And people notice that it's changing things. So that, that charge, like, I wouldn't want to be a lewd man of the baser sort, but to have somebody charge me with changing the world with the gospel, that would be cool. The, the other two charges, I find it interesting that the other charges resemble, um, the false charges that are brought against Jesus in his trial. So uh, they charge them with, you know, disobeying authorities, proclaiming that there is another king, and proclaiming that that king is Jesus. So I, I just find that interesting that, you know, they can't come up with anything new to charge godly men with. The only thing they can say is, you know, this message is changing things and we don't like that. So that they're doing whatever they can to get these people out of their city. And the authorities are upset because, you know, there's this mob and they don't want mobs in their cities. 
So the authorities get upset, and they, they eventually go to Jason, um, who most likely Paul and Silas were staying with uh, while they were in Thessalonica. And basically, Jason has to, to, to pay them off. Um, and it, verse 9 says, when they had taken money as a security from Jason. So basically, you know, they're, they're saying, your guys are causing all this trouble. Pay this crowd off so that they can disperse and promise Excuse me, promise us that Paul and Silas will never come back. And that really, you know, that appeases everyone. It's, it's kind of a win-win situation because the crowd disperses, so the authorities are fine. Uh, Paul and Silas are gone, so the Jews are fine. And even, you know, Paul can, Paul can rejoice in this because there have been enough converts in Thessalonica that a church is able to start. So he's able um, to write letters to this church. He writes two, two letters to the church at Thessalonica. Um, and the other part of his plan of evangelism that, that really stuck out to me is he's okay with leaving. He knows that the gospel doesn't you know, rest on him. If he is removed from a situation, he has trained these people in the gospel so well that they can take over and they can evangelize the locals um, who honestly would know, um, know the context better, would be able to you know, have the relationships that uh, oftentimes, it, well, at least in our day, lead to, um, to gospel situations. So it, it says that Paul was there for three Sabbath days reasoning with them. Now that, that might not seem like a lot of time, but we know from... Um, Philippians and Thessalonians that Paul was definitely there for more than three weeks. That's just the the amount of time that he spent in the synagogues reasoning with the Jews. Um, He receives financial support twice from the Philippians, so that that gives us a clue that he's there for an extended period of time. And I find in 1 Thessalonians it encouraging that when he leaves these people, he says that they are able to sound forth the word of God. And the word that he use, uses um, gives the idea of a trumpet blaring. So the word of God is going forth like a trumpet. And when somebody plays a trumpet, you know somebody's playing a trumpet. So just to think, you know, everyone around Macedonia... Thessalonica is hearing the word of God because of the converts that happened in Thessalonica. Third section, we move in to verses 10 through 15. After they get kicked out of the city, they have to travel 50 miles to Berea. And right, right away, again, verse, verse 10, when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Paul is intentional of his purpose of going to preach the gospel. And I find it, find it really cool. Um, the Bereans, in verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now, uh, Kevin DeYoung comments on this, and he says, nobility is measured by what you believe about the scriptures. Because the difference between the Jews in Berea and the Jews in Thessalonica is that they are receiving Paul's message and examining it with the Old Testament Scriptures. Instead of starting a mob, starting a riot, 
they're examining what he's saying. And they're, they're testing it according to the Scriptures. Now, isn't that something that we should do today? Now, yes, I, I'm up here speaking, but that doesn't mean you believe everything I say. You test it with the Scriptures. Somebody standing behind a pulpit does not have the ultimate authority. That comes from the Word of God. So they are looking to the Scriptures to see, oh, you know, he's, he was talking about this prophecy And he's saying that this man fulfilled it in this way. Well, maybe we should look at that. Maybe we should look into the prophecy more. What what can we do to, to examine this? And it says they examine the scriptures daily. So let that let that be a challenge to you, that you would examine the scriptures daily. The words that you hear, the messages that are proclaimed by this world, that you would measure them according to the word of God. They, they receive the word with all eagerness and examine what they hear. He's preaching the gospel and he's using the Old Testament to do that. Now, I, I once talked to somebody, uh, a fellow campus minister, and he said, if you want to really challenge someone, ask them to give a gospel presentation using only the Old Testament. Now, you have to really know your Bible to be able to do that. And this, this is the context that Paul is ministering in, because he's ministering to Jews who have the Old Testament Scriptures, and he has to point them to Christ in the Old Testament. And we see even more Jews believe here in Berea than in Thessalonica. And it's also many Greeks and many women again, not a few. I love that expression. Um, we did an icebreaker game at New Life once, um, and Dr. Gray was there. The, the question was, outside of Jesus, because we were looking to get away from the Sunday school answer, anybody would answer Jesus. Outside of Jesus, who is your favorite character in the Bible? We got to Dr. Gray, and he said, you know, I don't think I really have a favorite character, but I have a favorite people group. And he named the Bereans as his favorite people group, because basically he was saying, these people challenge me to examine the Scriptures. They challenge me to test what I hear. They challenge me to, to read the Word of God and understand and know this, this is the Word God has given us. And this is, um, this is what, we, what we have, what we need in order to uh, remain faithful to the call He has placed on our lives. So then the Thessalonians, Thessalonians hear that Paul and Silas are in Berea. So, get this. They, they hate this message of the gospel so much that they travel 50 miles in order to chase them out of that city as well. That's, that's just crazy. They're, they're willing and, and able to, to say, alright, this message is something that we want nothing to do with. So we're going to go 50 miles. I don't know how long that's going to take them to walk, to ride a horse. But they take that time to chase Paul and Silas out of Berea. And and next week we pick up that text um, when they are in Athens. So we have we have a bit of a, a bit of an understanding of what has happened. So now let's look at why does it matter? And, and what do we learn from this situation? And I'm really going to be focusing 
uh, on, on Paul's method of evangelism, his, his plan of evangelism, that he always starts in the synagogue with the Jews. Because they, they know, you know, someone's coming, there's a Messiah coming, and Paul knows that this Messiah has come. So he goes to them to say, this is who you're waiting for. And I, I forget uh, exactly what my outline in the bulletin looks like, um, but I do know that this is one of the blanks, and I know Pastor Nick was making fun of me because there were so many blanks in it, so I'm sorry for that. But first one we see, evangelism is not always once and done. It's reasoning and explaining. So Paul goes to them and he is sharing his life with them. He is reasoning from the Scriptures, providing logical answers to why this is true. He's able to answer questions and he's able to ask them questions that are going to challenge them. He knows the Scriptures and he uses it. He says, this is the Old Testament, this points to Christ. This points to Christ. And he just does that throughout the three Sabbath days that he's there. He had a Jewish background, so right there he has an advantage. And he uses it. He knows what they believe. He knows that, you know, there's these laws and these laws and all all the laws that they have to follow. And he's saying Christ has come and has fulfilled that. And he has a plan and he uses it. He goes from synagogue to synagogue preaching the gospel and changing the world. His argument is always based in Scripture. And it's based in the Scripture that they believe. Second thing he does, he explains. So, the way I kind of internalize this, he's, he's not just giving them a four spiritual laws gospel presentation. He's not saying, here, have this pamphlet, read it over, let me know what you think. He is literally sitting there, asking questions, answering questions, and saying, what do, what do you think about this scripture? What do you think about this prophecy? Why can't it have been fulfilled by this man, Jesus Christ? And I will always go back to the text in First Thessalonians where he is not only sharing the gospel of God, but he is sharing his life with them. And that is really our charge as well. Now, we go into the world, we are sent into the world to preach the gospel. Will that mean, yeah, handing somebody a pamphlet, a tract sometime? Okay, maybe. But living with people one-on-one so that they can see how Jesus is, how, how you portray your belief in Jesus in your everyday life. And ultimately, he is able to provide a reason for the hope that he has within him. We find that, that later uh, in, from Peter. Um, but he is able to, to say, I have trusted Christ as, as Savior because he is the Messiah. He has come and has fulfilled all of these prophecies. Third thing he does, which this is where Paul gets in trouble. And this is where oftentimes we might get in trouble. He proves that it was necessary for Christ to die. Now, why would somebody need to prove that it's necessary for Christ to die? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
He must confront them with their sin. We must be confronted with our sin. Because it is our sin that, that is the reason that sent Jesus to the cross. Because we have sin, Jesus had to die. We, we look at all the Old Testament sacrifices. The, the whole sacrificial system was never meant to be the end-all, be-all. It was never meant to be the only sacrificial system. It always points to Christ and says, there is one greater who is coming. And He will fulfill this system and forgive sins. Not just cover them over, He forgives sins. Confronting someone with their sin oftentimes is offensive. Especially, you know, living in a, a, a don't judge me kind of world. But, but that is why it is necessary that Christ went to the cross. And if there were no sin, there would be no reason for Christ to die. There would be no reason for the sacrifice of His life to be made. But we find it clearly presented in the Bible that all sin and all fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, Christ needs to come and, and, and suffer and die on the cross. And it's not an easy message to proclaim, but it is necessary that we proclaim it. And it is absolutely crucial to the message of the Gospel. We must know that we need a Savior. If we don't know in our own lives as Christians that we need a Savior, what is the world going to think about that Savior that we proclaim? They're going to say, oh, you know... You say you believe this, but then live a completely different way. You're not showing Christ in your actions. Now, may not use those words, but, but that's what is internalized in their mind. They say, the, the biggest charge that we see labeled against Christians, you know, you acknowledge Jesus with your lips, but ignore Him with your lifestyle. That, like, that's what we're dealing with. Because, uh, as one pastor says, until we see the cross as done by us, we cannot see it as done for us. Our sin is what sent Christ to the cross. So we have to deal with that. We have to, to be able to see, okay, there is this claim that a man came and lived a perfect life. Then he's crucified and he dies and rises again. We have to do something with that. The world has to do something with that. And Ignoring it or indecision about that is doing something about it because they're saying, oh, no, 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 I don't need that. I don't believe that. I don't need a Savior. I can do it all on my own. But we know the gospel is the only hope we have for salvation. The fact that Jesus comes, sheds his blood on the cross, that is the only thing that can wash us of our sin. But the question is often asked, what are we saved from? Well, really two things. We're saved from the wrath of God. God's wrath is poured out fully on the Son. And, and people don't like to see God as wrathful. But He is just. And because He is just, He has to punish sin. The second thing, we are saved from the penalty of our sin, which kind of go hand in hand. But we know as Christians, as believers, that sin is an offense to God. And, and we recognize that 
only through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, it must lead us to repentance. It must lead us to worship this God, this suffering Savior, as the only one who can pay the penalty. We must trust and believe that that this Messiah, the one that Paul is proclaiming, the one that I am proclaiming today, is the only hope we have for salvation. We must be steadfast in proclaiming this like Paul. This is the fourth thing he does. He proclaims the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wherever he goes. I, I mean, I think of um, the example of when he's chained to, to the Roman guard. He is preaching the gospel to this Roman guard and it spreads throughout the whole Praetorian guard. Paul is, is so gospel-centered, so Christ-centered in his life that most likely everyone he comes into contact with Here's the gospel. So, so again, let that be a challenge to us. Let that be that everyone we come in contact with knows the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the decision is, you know, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit as the only one who can change hearts, the decision is theirs. We, all we can do is faithfully proclaim. The Holy Spirit will change hearts. The Holy Spirit will harden hearts. All we do is faithfully proclaim. And, and the message that we proclaim, absolutely, yes, it is offensive. It is not an easy thing to hear about sin in our own lives. But praise God that it's not our words that change hearts. Praise God that the Holy Spirit does that. And all we have to do is remain faithful. So this message gets Paul and Silas kicked out. And yet, they continue to faithfully preach. They continue going from city to city, uh, from Thessalonica to Debrea to Athens um, to Corinth to all of these cities that we're going to keep talking about through, through the narrative of Acts. And they are faithfully and boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this, this comes to us then, that in our workplaces, in our schools, in our classrooms... Are we faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? The message that we proclaim, yes, sin is an offense to God, and that Jesus is our only hope for reconciliation. It's it's only through His blood that we can be saved. We must turn from sin and run to Christ. That is, that is the definition of repentance we get from Acts 26. And we'll get there, but it is keeping, performing deeds that, that keep with your repentance. So we, we daily sin. We daily offend God. Therefore, we must daily repent. Our, our lives as Christians must be marked by repentance because we know our offense. We know what our sin did to Christ. Therefore, we must not only proclaim, but we must ourselves repent. And we must, therefore, proclaim and trust Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All the while knowing, yes, it could start a riot, or it could start a revival. Or it could start both. So the right response that we have to 
to the gospel is eagerness, examination, belief. Now, when believers hear the gospel, that is the response that we have. The world sees the cross as folly, as foolishness, as we don't need that. We see it as beautiful. We see it as as reconciliation. The world does not recognize its sin. We see our sin as what sent Jesus to the cross. The world sees Jesus' suffering as entertainment. We see it as what we rightly deserve. The world sees Jesus' resurrection as impossible. We see it as the grave coughing up a sinless man who could not be held by death because he had no sin in him. He defeated the grave. He defeated death. And he stands victorious at the right hand of the Father. And this is something that we get to celebrate today. As we move into a time of communion, uh, we, have, we have the bread and cup here. We, we have a representation of what Christ has done on the cross. We, we see this, this bread, loaf of bread bought at a local grocery store, as a representation of the body of Christ. Now, it does not magically become the literal body of Christ. This does not magically become the literal blood of Christ. This is a picture of what we see happening on the cross. Now, I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verses uh, 23 through 26, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often of you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, as, as we break this bread together, we are reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. When we, we, we pour the juice into the cup, we are reminded of God's wrath being poured out on Jesus. We are reminded of His blood that is poured out for us and the only hope we have for reconciliation. And in partaking of this, we remember the price paid by Jesus Christ in our place. Now this this is just a visible representation of the message of the Gospel. It doesn't matter if, if you're not a member of Big Woods. But you must be a believer. You must have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Because otherwise, it's meaningless. And it is a celebration because in verse 26 we were reminded, 
that as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So if I could have uh, those who are serving communion come forward.